Welcome back to For the Defense. My name is David Oscar Marcus, and I have a real treat for you on the podcast today. We have Matt Menchel, one of the great trial lawyers, and also a close, close friend. He's going to be discussing the Raul Weil case. Weil was a Swiss banker at UBS, and Matt represented him in federal court in Fort Lauderdale. Matt and I go way back. We tried a case in Fort Lauderdale, one of my first cases when I was a federal public defender and he was an assistant United States attorney. That was in the Fort Lauderdale courthouse before Judge Gonzalez. And I learned a lot from Matt during that trial. And we became close, close friends from trying cases against each other. Now he's one of the great criminal defense lawyers. You're going to hear us discuss tactics such as how long should a cross-exam go on for? How do you decide whether to put on a case or not? Um, whether you should follow all of Irvin Younger's commandments. Both Matt and I, when a jury has been out, we've both sought help from a higher power. You're going to hear us discuss stories like that. It's a really fun episode, and I'm really proud of it. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Matt Menchel and For the Defense, next. Welcome back to For the Defense. We've got the wonderful Matt Menchel here on the show this morning, and Matt is a very close friend, but more importantly for the show, one of the greatest trial lawyers. Um, we've had cases against each other when he was a prosecutor, um, when he was a federal prosecutor down here in the Southern District of Florida. Before that, he was a state prosecutor in New York, and now he's one of the finest white-collar criminal defense lawyers. If I had a family member in trouble, Matt would be the guy i call. So welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you, and thank you for that very kind introduction. So, so we're going to be talking about a really fascinating white collar case in a lot of ways, a complicated case, but in a lot of ways, a pretty simple case as well. Um, your, your client's name was Raul Weil. Can you yes. tell us a little about, about him and, and who he is and the charges against him? Sure. So uh, Raul Weil was a, a banker at uh, UBS, uh, the, the largest bank in Switzerland, the third largest bank in the world. Uh, and at the time of his indictment in 2008, he was the number three uh, person at UBS and widely understood to be the next in line to become the CEO of the entire bank. He was in charge of the private wealth division, which was the largest private wealth division in the world with $2.6 trillion of assets under management. Um, so it was a very important figure at the bank, a very beloved figure, I might, I might uh, add as well, very highly regarded and respected by virtually everybody at the bank. Uh, up until the time of his indictment, which effectively ended his career from that point forward. Pretty uh, pretty crazy how much money was involved, uh, both that he, you know, was was sort of tied to in the bank itself. And, and, you know, the bank, I guess, settled for some huge amount of money, right? So the bank entered into a deferred prosecution agreement with the, the DOJ and settled for $780 million. Uh, <laughs> This was all based on a whistleblower complaint filed by a UBS banker who happened to be an American named Bradley Birkenfeld, um, who blew the whistle on uh, UBS. And he got $104 million of that $780 million, uh, plus 40 months in jail for his own participation in the scheme. Um, but it actually, the $780 million seemed paltry because later Credit Suisse settled under cer similar circumstances for $2.6 billion dollars. Crazy. And, um, and, you know, they say cr crime doesn't pay, but I guess that the, the whistleblower got over 100 million. Uh, when when that got uh, released, my friends and I used to talk about whether 40 months was how much uh, money you would you would have to take to do 40 months. Uh, certainly 100 million. Everybody agreed th they would do, which we don't need to talk about him, but just crazy numbers. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and, and to be clear, the amount of money that was at issue uh, was not the amount of money of, of the assets under management. We, we were talking about a very, very small percentage, actually less than 1% of the private wealth division, which, which concerned U.S. persons or U.S. clients of the bank who had bank accounts in Switzerland at UBS that who were not reporting uh, their income tax to the uh, U.S. IRS. Well, well, tell us. So, so tell us about that. What was Weil actually charged with? So he was charged with a single count of conspiracy to defraud the United States, specifically the IRS, in a conspiracy to assist U.S. taxpayers who had accounts at UBS in hiding their assets such that they would not have to pay income tax on it. That was the gravamen of the charge. And and at the time, I mean, this was what, around 2014-ish, the trial? Well, he, he was indicted in 2008. Um, the Swiss do not extradite their citizens for tax-related offenses. And so he remained in Switzerland for most of that time until he took a trip in 2013 to Bologna, Italy uh, with his wife. Uh, and he was arrested at the hotel in Bologna, Italy at 1.30 in the morning and brought to a very dangerous maximum security prison in Italy outside of Bologna, uh, where he was there for two months until he was extradited to the U.S. Did Actually, he waived extradition. Did he know about the charges when he was traveling or or he he who wasn't aware of them? He was aware that he was under indictment. The indictment, by the way, was what forced UBS to settle because uh, just as a quick side note on that, um, UBS uh, wanted to go through the treaty negotiation process. It was a treaty set up between the U.S. and and the, and the Swiss, and they wanted to go through the treaty process to try to resolve the disputes they were having with the U.S. government. And the U.S. government was having none of it. They indicted Raoul Weil as basically a very clear message. If you don't start doing what we want you to do, which in part, by the way, was to disclose a number of U.S. clients who had these accounts, uh, we're going to take hostages. And Weil was the first one. So the indictment was unsealed in 2008. Uh, UBS settled within months of that indictment. Right. And he I was not his lawyer at the time, but he was under the impression, whether mistaken, obviously mistakenly, that he could travel outside of Switzerland. He just couldn't come to the United States. So he was aware of the charges, but unaware that he would be arrested in Italy when he went there. So he gets arrested in Italy. Um, and and you say he goes to a very dangerous prison. There's a there's a crazy story about what happens in that prison. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So this prison was, was built um, actually to house terrorists. And it wound up housing at, at the time he was there, not only terrorists, but murderers, uh, members of the Sicilian mafia, mafia uh, really the, the the baddest of the bad. And what had been reported in the Italian press at the time of his apprehension was that he had stolen $200 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the allegation was he had assisted U.S. taxpayers in not declaring $200 million worth of, of, of income tax. Um, but that had been misreported in the Italian press. And so very early on, he was taken into a room with another prisoner who was attempting to claim to befriend him and put a knife right up to his face and demanded to know where the $200 million was. Holy cow. I had to explain he doesn't have $200 million. And by the way, Swiss bankers, while they're not poor by any stretch, they don't make the kind of what I'm going to call Jamie Dimon money that we're used to hearing about in the US. N- nothing even close to that. It's a very different system. Um, but luckily for Raul, he wound up getting housed in a um, in a cell with two brothers who were who were members of the Sicilian mafia, they took a liking to him and he was basically protected uh, for the rest of the time he was there during those two months. It's like a movie. 
Yeah, it, it was. And knowing him, um, you know, he's one of the most unflappable men I've ever met in my life. And, and he probably took he took this as just another experience. He also began at that time to start writing down what was happening to him, um, really just to keep a record that he thought he would be sharing one day with his with his family members and close friends. And that later turned into a into a bestselling book that was a bestseller in Switzerland about his entire ordeal from from the arrest onward. We need to get that translated into English. Yeah, it's in, unfortunately, it's in German. And uh, I know I mentioned in it, he, he kindly said that to me, but I can't make heads or tails out of what he's saying. So he he had a group from Fresh Fields as his lawyers. Um, and then you get brought on only shortly before the trial. T- tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, Fresh Fields, which is a, a very uh, uh, highly regarded, what, what's called magic circle firm in the United Kingdom, one of the top law firms in the UK and, and throughout Europe. And he was very capably represented by Freshfields, particularly Aaron Marcoux, who was lead counsel for them, and Kim Zelnick, who was another partner working with Aaron, as well as a whole team of associates who were really top-notch folks. Um, but but the case was indicted in uh, the Southern District of Florida. It was pending before Judge Khan in, in Fort Lauderdale, who we both know. And uh, Aaron hired me because um, he said he wanted, quote, more firepower. Uh, to bring on board. And I was more than happy to to join the team. So I don't remember exactly when I came on, but probably five or six months before the start of the trial, I started getting onboarded onto the case. You, you know, just you mentioned Judge Khan, who, you know, so people know he's this Southern gentleman who who uh, is a judge in Fort Lauderdale, one of the best judges we have. He's a big Alabama fan. He's he's a character. Um, and and I'm interested to hear. We'll get into it, how he was during the trial. Yeah, he was, I mean, it, 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 my, it was my first experience with him. I don't even think, I might have appeared in court maybe once before him as an AUSA, but I'm not even sure that that's true. I don't remember. Um, but this was really my first experience with him. And it was really one of the more pleasurable trial experiences I've had. Of course, when you win, you always say that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but it really was. It wasn't one of those things where, you know, okay, looking back on it, I'm happy with the outcome and therefore happy with the court. No, it was he was a very fair-minded guy from the beginning and, and really gave us some very uh, important rulings that shaped the outcome of the case. Well, I've, I've lost a trial in front of Judge Khan and uh, walked out of there liking the guy. And I said, what just happened? I lost and I still like the guy, which is, you know, like you say, it rarely happens. Yeah. yeah. No, he was terrific. He's, you know, very big on time, uh, doesn't like to waste a minute of the jury's time, which is fine. Um, you know, so he's, he doesn't like sidebars. Uh you know, I, we, we had them. And every time I would ask for a sidebar, he would reluctantly give it. But, you know, it was grudging. But um, that's only because he wanted to move the case along for the benefit of the jury. Right. Um, right. I really I, I I wound up having lunch with him um, after the trial was over some months, not months, some weeks later. Um, and he asked me to speak to his clerks about the case, which I was happy to do. So, so nice. Yeah, he was he was he was a total gentleman throughout. So let's talk a little about some of the pretrial rulings in the case, because I think they're they're important. And, you know, a lot of times the pretrial rulings get overlooked um, because we're, we're talking about trial. But these these were important. Um, the first one had to deal that I want to talk about how to deal with a jury instruction that you were able to get. Typically, jury instructions are, are, you know, are dealt with at the last minute. But in this case, you guys dealt with the pretrial. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah. And, and in order for me to explain that, I just and I don't want to bore the, you know, the, the listeners yeah. too much detail, but I think it's important to understand what, what this case was basically about. Yes. You know, Swiss bank secrecy, bank secrecy in Switzerland has been the law, as far as I know, since the beginning of, of Swiss banking. Um, 
And uh, not surprisingly, many people have used it not only in, in the U.S., but throughout the world as a way of hiding assets, not only perhaps from their own family members, but from their own governments who are, are, yeah. are the taxing authorities. Right. Uh, in, in 2000, um, the IRS entered into a series, uh, entered into an agreement with a number of Swiss banks called the Qualified Intermediary Agreement or the QI Agreement, as it was referred to throughout the trial. Mm-hmm. This agreement mostly dealt with giving incentives to Swiss banks, giving tax breaks to Swiss banks involving foreign nationals having U.S. securities. That was not our case. But there was a small provision or part of this very complex agreement that dealt with U.S. persons or U.S. clients who had Swiss accounts. And basically, up until that point, the the IRS was aware that there were many U.S. uh, uh, clients who were not reporting their income tax. Had, so, they had the accounts to hide them. They had the accounts to hide them. They had the accounts to hide them. Yeah. About 20,000 accounts, according to the U.S. government. Um, so as part of this QI agreement, um, a compromise was reached between the IRS, the U.S. IRS, and the Swiss banks, which was, look, if you have U.S. clients, okay, they have to do one of three. There are one of three things you can do if they have U.S. securities, okay? If they want to hold U.S. securities in, in a Swiss bank, that's fine, but you have to insist that they fill out a W-9. And then by filling out a W form W-9 and signing it, then obviously the bank would issue a 1099 and the taxing authorities, the IRS, would be aware of the income. That right. was option one. Option two was, and this was the compromise position, if U.S. persons or U.S. clients still want to have a Swiss bank account, they can do so and they can keep it secret and undeclared, but they have to divest themselves of all U.S. securities. They can only have foreign securities or cash. They can't have U.S. securities. And if they do that, the U.S. persons are still on the hook to pay whatever income tax they should be paying. But the bank had no obligation to do anything. There wasn't a W-9 that they were required to have to have signed or a 1099 that had to be issued, nothing. If the, if the U.S. client refused to either sign a W-9 or divest itself of its U.S. holdings, then the bank was required to do what was called a forced sale, meaning they had to liquidate the account, okay? And a a very large withholding tax, about 30%, would be withheld and paid to the U.S. government. Okay. Um, Very few clients chose that option. Those that did probably was because they couldn't get in touch with those people, but but the vast majority either went with options one or two. So so Um, they they reached this agreement, the QI agreement, and and the bottom line is you guys use that agreement in your defense and in this pretrial motion to get this jury instruction. Yes, because what the government was arguing was that it was still a crime for UBS to have U.S. clients who had secret accounts. And that simply was not true. There was a contract between the IRS and in this case, UBS, but any bank that signed this agreement, which said you can have a U.S. client that has a secret Swiss account so long as they don't have U.S. securities. And the government simply either didn't understand that or refused to accept that that was clearly the contract. But and so we got an I'm sorry. So we got an instruction which said that that was that they were allowed to do that. And therefore, there was no fraud because our argument was you can't defraud the IRS out of something that they agreed to do. And agreed to allow, and that was our, the gravamen of our of our defense for a lot of the case. But I find it fascinating that you were able to litigate that jury instruction issue pre-trial, because as I said, most of the time that gets 
you know, a judge will say, well, let's hear the evidence. I'll, I'll wait till the end. How did you get it teed up and and get that jury instruction? Yeah, and 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 again, credit to Freshfields because I don't. I think it was either Kim Zelnick or Aaron Marcoux who argued this motion. I don't believe I did, but we felt it was important that the jury be instructed as part of the preliminary instructions, so they understood the framework, okay, of 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 what this case was about. That was our view. And I and by the way, my memory is the government fought tooth and nail to keep this. Of course, out. of course. Um, so. You know, our argument was that you needed to understand this in order to understand the evidence as it was unfolding before it was unfolding, because it was so important. And, you know, Judge Khan, being the great jurist that he is, agreed. He did say to me um, later, he said, I had no idea the impact that that instruction would have on this case. It really it really was the difference between winning and losing, because getting the instruction from the court that this was absolutely allowable. Okay, really put the lie to the government's a majority of the government's case. There were other aspects of the case that we had to deal with, but a big part of their case was it was inherently unlawful just for the bank to allow undeclared accounts to continue to exist. And that simply was not true. Another huge pretrial ruling you got, Matt, and and again, I find this fascinating, is there was this this report issued that your client had not done anything wrong um, by another investigative agency overseas. And you know, I mean, when you and I talked about this, like neither of us would ever think that's admissible. And yet a young lawyer litigated it and and was able to convince the judge to get it in. Yeah, that all credit to Kim Zelnick, who um, I think the lesson on this one, David, is sometimes being too experienced can be a bad thing because you close your eyes to possibilities that may exist that you don't think exist. So in this case, what you're referring to is the Swiss banking authority in the wake of the Birkenfeld whistleblower complaint, launched its own investigation into the allegations. Um, and, and and we haven't talked about this yet, but one of the mainstays of the allegations, which, which was true, okay, was that after the QI agreement, some of the Swiss bankers in the North American desk, the desk dealing with US clients, were helping Americans hide their, their assets by setting up sham or fake foundations or trusts in other names so that they could get around the QI agreement by having U.S. securities, but the U.S. securities would be in the name of a found, of a Liechtenstein or a Bahamian trust or foundation, and therefore hiding the identity to the U.S. authorities. That absolutely happened. It had nothing to do with Rob Weil, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but the Swiss banking authority uh, called FINMA did an eight-month, very comprehensive investigation found that those things did occur, but they occurred at the lowest levels, uh, only only up to the mid-level of the bank, and that the higher level bank uh, banking supervisors, like Raoul Weil, who was mentioned by name, was were not told about this, and and in fact knew nothing of it, and would not have would not have um, tolerated it because they even noted that Weil was a total zero tolerance guy when it came to compliance. He wanted total compliance uh, enforced. And they they exonerated him by name in the report. So Kim Zelnick, did, so this would be a great report to get before the jury. We have a we have the Swiss banking authority exonerating our client on the very charges that the U.S. government is bringing. She wrote this motion and she said, I want you to look at it. And I kept saying, there's no way that report is coming in. There's just no way. Right. There's no way a judge is going to let another tribunal's finding of innocence or exoneration come in in our case. And she said, well, you just read it. And she kept pestering me to read this. And I kept putting it aside. And finally, she got very angry. And I said, OK, fine, I'll read it. And so I read the report. And my my colleague at the time, Adriana Riviera, I said, I'm reading this thing. And this, this can't be right. She cited a bunch of cases. And 
I told Adriana, you got to pull these cases for me. And I read the cases and I'm like, oh, my God, she's right. This is admissible under the public records exception under the hearsay rule, as long as you can show that the report was inherently reliable. So we filed this motion in limine before Judge Kahn. And I recall him saying something very similar when he took the bench. He said, you know, I got to tell you, when I when I read this, I said, no way this is coming in. Uh, and then I, I read the law and I realized you were right. So so he let it in. Um, but at the same time, the government was seeking to get in the deferred prosecution agreement, sort of arguing what's good for the goose is good for the gander. I saw them as two entirely different things. One was an investigative report. The other was a settlement not involving our client. And Judge Khan said, well, I'm not going to let it in unless they open the door. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know what that meant. All I knew was that it scared me. So we got the report in, but we made very light use of it. And I really didn't focus on it too much until the end of the trial during the closing arguments. You know, it's interesting because a report like that, you and I would think would have enormous impact. But I think you guys did some focus groups and and those uh, focus groups weren't all that impressed uh, with the report, which which I find interesting. Yeah, my rec- we did it. We did definitely did a jury exercise um, with a great jury consultant, uh, Door, uh, and a woman named Julie Blackman, who was fabulous, who's since retired. But um, and um, my memory of it is that it really didn't have that much sway. And 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 when you think about it more, a little bit more deeply than I I guess I thought of originally, it's that well they're hearing the facts themselves, right? So it's 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 not unusual that the jurors would say, well that's fine that they made that decision, but. We're going to make our own decision, and I think I, I'm, it didn't hurt to get it in. Obviously, it was very helpful, and and it wound up being a very important point of cross examination with one of the government's cooperators, which I can talk about in a minute. But, yeah, we'll get there in a minute. But one thing I want to talk about while we're here is, you know, there's been a lot of debate on the podcast about whether these jury exercises are useful or not. Some some lawyers love them, some lawyers hate them. Um, what, what's your view on on doing these jury exercises, these focus groups before trial? Yeah, I definitely don't hate them. Um, I mean, I use them. I I think they're a tool. I don't know that they're necessarily predictive uh, and, and should be used as 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 outcome predictors because it's a very compressed thing, right? And and sometimes, right, it, something that may have taken fifteen or twenty minutes in a focus group could be two days of testimony. And so, in a in a focus group, you may wrongly conclude, well, the jury didn't seem all that interested in that, but that's because it was minimized just by the by the the compression of time. So I think you have to take them with a grain of salt. But to me, it's more information. Um, and I think more information is better than less. And to the extent that it helps inform what is resonating and what isn't, I think it's valuable. Of course, you grew up in the in the state attorney's office in New York where, forget about focus groups, you get handed the file sometimes uh, the day before trial. I mean, it, let's talk about that for a second. Just, I've been just handed to- files walking to the courtroom for trial when I was in the office. office. Not, not often, but that did happen to me. Right. I mean, isn't that wasn't that a wonderful time, though, to be able to do jump into a trial like that without the the six months or years of preparation? Yeah, look, I think it's I, I think it's good and bad. And I'll tell you why. Um, I think it is great to learn how to how to question on your feet, um, how to think on your feet quickly and have to respond to things that you might not have been fully prepared for because you simply didn't have the luxury of time. The problem is I've sometimes seen state prosecutors when they transition into more complicated cases, let's say they become federal prosecutors, they don't know what to do with the time, right? They're not used to having this preparatory time. And you have to learn, obviously, that it's not ideal to try a case that way, but it is 
it is helpful because you learn certain tricks. You learn how to phrase certain questions because when you're not sure what the answers might be in a way that won't hurt you, for example. Right. Um, uh, and but but it was that time in my life was enormously helpful because the sheer volume of trials I was getting. This was the 1980s and 1990s in New York City at a time when when drugs were rampant, crack epidemic had happened, heroin was making a comeback. And I was a drug prosecutor for most of that that time. And it was literally like picking, you know, fruit from a tree. Um, I mean, I, I was trying a, as many cases as I wanted. And I liken it to to when you learn how to ski, they, they take you to a, a green hill, right? The most least steep hill. And you can practice rudimentary things like how to how to turn and eventually how to become a parallel skier and how to do a proper stop. And and later you can even practice things like, like skiing backwards, not something I ever actually did, but I looked at it the same way, right? The fact patterns were relatively simple. Not that the cases were necessarily easy to win, but the fact patterns were simple. Um, and it allowed me to develop skills because I didn't have to spend so much time understanding the case. The case was simple, right? And so I could really focus on on technique, on on how to cross, for example, and how to how to develop better ways of opening, um, things like that. You probably saw some some great New York defense lawyers um, who who probably some of them didn't even get recognition just coming and trying those drug cases and and doing great. Yeah, there were there were a number of really great great lawyers back then. Um, there was a law firm called Goldstein and Weinstein or Weinstein and Goldstein, who were two guys out of the Bronx who did a, a, an incredible number of drug cases. And they were formidable. I tried cases against both of them, um, a number of cases against both of them. And I had nothing but respect for them. And I learned from them. They taught me things. Of course. Um, and, you know, I've told stories on this podcast. When I was a brand new lawyer, I tried cases against you and learned uh, learned a lot of tricks about you know, one thing is 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 trying to undermine the credibility of your opponent. I think that's that's a critical part of the trial. The jury's going to look to which lawyer they trust more, and it's something I learned from you in in one of my first trials. I use it to this day, trying to during trial undermine the credibility of of the other lawyer. You know, one of the most amazing experiences I ever had was my very first jury trial, um, and. What happened there was back in those days, once the jury got the case, they were sequestered. Okay. So if the jury didn't reach a verdict, let's say they got the case at one o'clock in the afternoon and they didn't reach a verdict, they went to a hotel oh. with court security officers watching them. And wow. they would and then they would resume again in court the next day. And if they didn't reach a verdict, they'd go back to the hotel. As a result of that, that that was since disbanded. I think the economics of that were insane. But yeah. But um, my first, so as a result of that, you would often get verdicts late at night. So my first verdict came at 10 o'clock at night. And it was a drug case. It was a simple buy and bust, um, but not an easy case. Um, the man who was convicted had neither drugs nor any of the mark money on him, right? So not, not an easy case, a pure ident identification case. And after the jury was released, we set a date for, um, you know, for, for the sentencing. And I walked out and I imagine this is 10 o'clock at night. The courthouse is empty. Right, right. And about six of the 12 jurors are standing by the elevator bank, clearly waiting for me. And I get into the elevator with them. And we were trained in the Manhattan DA's office, never speak to a convicting jury. <laughs> okay. You can only hear things you don't necessarily want to know, and then they have to report, right? Okay. Yeah. You've won, leave. So I'm looking down at my shoes, and I can feel that all the other six jurors are sort of looking at me. And finally, one of them says to me, Mr. Menschel, you know, can we ask you a question? 
by the way, I'm 25 years old at this time, right? I'm, <laughs> I'm a young prosecutor. And um, I don't want to be impolite. And so I think for a moment and I say, yes, but I don't want to know anything about your deliberative process. Don't tell me anything about your deliberations. And they said, no, no, it's it's not that. And the question that they asked was, he was guilty, right? <laughs> now, they had just voted guilty, right? Oh, and that was an eye-opening experience for me because what it told me was they wanted validation from me that they had just done the right thing. And then the question is why, right? And I think the answer is because they understand intuitively, if not consciously, that the lawyers know more about the truth of the case, the facts of the case, than they're getting. And the reason why they know it is every time a question is asked and then there's an objection and the, the judge sustains it, that's a piece of data that's been kept from them, right? Every time there's a sidebar, we're talking about stuff they're not allowed to hear. Every time they're sitting in the back room for an hour, they come back into the room and the judge says, I'm sorry, we had to talk about matters outside of your hearing. Sorry to delay you, right? That's more stuff. And in fact, in that exact example, they were right. I knew things, for example, I knew that that was the third or fourth time the man had committed that offense. That wasn't admitted during the trial. Right. I knew that the co-defendant who had pled guilty had implicated him, but we had cut a deal that we wouldn't call him at the trial. Right. So, so there were things like that. And so you're right. I think the jury understands that both lawyers know more than they're getting. And then the question is, which of the two lawyers can they trust is the one that's going to give them the truth? And so I think you're right. I think a trial is largely about, to the extent you can, jealously guarding your credibility and undermining the credibility of your adversary. Fascinating. And and so let's go back to the the Weil case in trial. You're you're headed into this trial. It's it's. Do, does the government make plea offers? Do they try to get a deal done, or or is this a definite trial? Oh, they made multiple plea offers. I don't remember. There were three. I don't remember what the initial one was. But on, three days before the trial, they had offered him, they had offered Raul a year and a day, which would also include the two months he had done in the Italian prison. He was not interested. I don't think there was any any plea offer they would have made him that would have, maybe maybe he would have taken a plea had they offered him nothing just to get it over with. But he's a very principled man and... uh he really didn't think he did anything wrong. I frankly didn't think he did anything wrong and he wanted his day. Those are the best clients because even times when clients believe they've done nothing wrong, sometimes they take a deal. And I think in this in this uh, investigation, there were people like that. There was another Swiss banker at UBS who was my client prior to, to Raul Weil, um, lower level banker who had been arrested coming into the US based on information that yet another cooperator had provided. And... He was here under house arrest in the U.S. in Miami for at least a year, might have been a year and a half, with two young children in Switzerland with his wife, who occasionally would come. They didn't have a lot of money. They would come maybe once or twice a year to see their father. And at the end of the day, the the same prosecutor, by the way, um, same lead prosecutor, wound up offering him 33 days time served, uh, which was the amount of time it took to transport him when he was arrested in New York and brought to Miami. So confronted with that, um, he said, let me make sure I understand the situation. I can, can hold fast to my position. I'll get indicted. It'll take at least another year, maybe longer before I go to trial. You're telling me I have a good chance of winning, but you can't guarantee it. I'm facing five years or I can plead guilty to the 33 days that I've already served and be on the next plane to Zurich. And I couldn't argue with 
the logic of that. And But it irked me to no end. And the fact that they offered him 33 days tells you everything you need to know about their own belief in their case. Of course. Right. And, and and that's why, you know, another guest we had on the show, Jed Rakoff, who you tried a case in front of recently, wrote that article, Why Innocent People Plead Guilty. That's a perfect example. Who I mean, everybody would take that deal. It would be it'd be foolish not to, even if you're a hundred percent convinced of your innocence. It's just too risky to go to a trial when they're saying you take time served and go home. You know, and by the way, we got all the discovery that we would have gotten for him in the wild case. And once we saw the discovery, it only confirmed what we knew, which was they had no case against this particular banker. But rather than let it go, in order to save face, they made him a deal. They made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Right. Uh, Right. So so let's talk about some of the cross-examination, because I think this is where, you know, you you were amazing. And, you know, I know you talk about the pretrial litigation as as critical to winning the case. But to me, the cross is... Uh, won the case. The first one is this guy. Is it Schumacher or Shoemaker? How do, how do you say his name? Schumacher. Hans Rudy Schumacher. Schumacher yeah. was one of the was one of the um, cooperating witnesses, and I guess testified under this what's called a queen for a day letter. And so people know it. That is typically people testify with a deal in place. They've either pled guilty, they've gotten immunity, um, they have some sort of deal before they testify. Th- this witness testified under a very um, sort of informal queen for a day. It's a letter saying, we won't use what you say against you, but that's really the only, there's not much teeth to it. Right. And let me just set the stage for this. Two months before trial, the government had told us that they had one Swiss banker who was going to cooperate and testify against Raoul Weil. And that was a gentleman named Martin Lichty, um, who was below Raoul Weil in the chain of command and who really was the one pointing the finger at, at Raoul Weil that even got him indicted in the first place. My view is that the government realized how vulnerable he was, and so they got desperate and started cutting deals so that by the time we got to trial, there were five Swiss bankers testifying against Raoul Weil. Schumacher, who had been indicted for a number of years, had been trying for well over a year and a half to get a deal with the DOJ, and they weren't interested. And now that Weil was pushing forward for trial, literally, they rushed it so fast that they couldn't get him to plead and enter into a cooperation agreement, which is the norm. They had him testify under a queen for a day letter. They just expanded the date an extra couple of days. Um, he, and I have, he, was, he was jumping on the bus, Matt, a, a moving bus this time. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, and um, I was able to bring out on cross that essentially what that agreement says is we are evaluating you and whether or not we're going to decide that your cooperation is worthy, whether or not your your, your statements are worthy of cooperation. So I was able to have some fun with Cross on the idea that as you're sitting here right now, those folks over at that table are, quote, evaluating you to decide whether they're going to accept you as a cooperator while you're testifying under oath. And the other point that we were able to make was, and by the way, you're 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 accepting responsibility for nothing, because right now everything you're saying can't be used against you under this Queen for a Day agreement in your case, with some limited exceptions, as you know. But but for the most part, he was able to say whatever he wanted without fear that it was going to be introduced against him in his own trial. So he said all these things, you, you know, with at, at the time he was saying it, with no ramifications that it was going to hurt him. Amazing. Uh, it was and, unbelievable. And so so as you're getting ready for this cross, I mean, things are happening quickly. It's the last minute. I, I imagine your, your days from the DA's office uh, come into play because you don't have too much time to get ready for the Schumacher cross. We didn't have too much time, but again, and, and I made a joke. I remember after the cross was over saying it takes a village to do a cross because with with Adriana and then also with the incredible Freshfields team, 
we had a very robust cross um, and there were some really um, dramatic moments. And in fact, not only the, the Freshfields folks, but Raul Wiles' wife also played a very important feature in this. And if you'll allow me to tell that, that little vignette, I think it's interesting. So Please. one of the things that, that, that Schumacher was going to testify, Schumacher was the sort of immediate supervisor of the North American desk. Um, and they had clearly gotten legal advice after the QI agreement that they could not advise U.S. clients on setting up structures, period, full stop. That would have been a violation of the QI. You cannot advise or insist or in any way. And no sooner does Schumacher get that legal advice that he then takes all the senior people off of it and emails down below him and says, we have to find an innovative solution to this problem, meaning we have to basically ignore it and figure out a way around it um, so we can continue to help our U.S. clients set up sham structures and do what they have to do. Um, Schumacher eventually leaves the bank upon the enforcement of the QI to go to a bank that is not a QI bank so that he can continue to help U.S. taxpayers avoid taxes. Right. And so what he wants to do is solicit all the all of his clients who to come with him because he's basically saying, look, UBS is no longer going to be in the business of helping you hide assets. You should come with me. And in particular, he testified that one U.S. person, I'm going to refer to him by his initials, even though it was public record, um, J.R., a man who had many, many millions of dollars under management, I think 75 million, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, Schumacher went to see him shortly after he resigned from the bank and said, look, UBS is not going to keep your money safe anymore. You, you need to come with me. And according to this, by the way, this is a conversation that happened 12 years before Schumacher's testifying to it. Oh, my God. And, and according to Schumacher, J.R., the U.S. person, the U.S. client said, I met with Raul Weil and another banker, and they told me, quote, my money is safe at UBS, meaning they're going to continue to help me hide my assets. If the jury believed that testimony alone, Weil was guilty of, of conspiracy. Right, Game that. Over. Just that. that by okay. So prior to the trial, we didn't even have the name of the of the U.S. Uh, client. I think it had been redacted. It was, I think it was later disclosed as, part, as a co-conspirator statement, but we didn't have it initially. But there were emails describing who he was, that he was a New Yorker, that he visited Basel uh, at least once a year, that he had a business um, that was going to be taken over by his children soon. So Susan Weil, right, world's greatest detective with no formal training, put her, <laughs> put her mind to work and said, if he's going to Basel, he's only going there for one of two reasons. They have two fairs there. They have the art show and they have the, the jewelry and watch show. But he said he was in a business that was on the lower end of a business. Well, there's no lower end art business. There's a lower end watch business. So she perceived he was now a watch dealer selling low end watches, living in Manhattan that he, of an older age because his children were going to be taking over the business. And using that and reading through a bunch of the, 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 the Swiss files, you should understand the banking client files are only numbered. They have no names on them. They're just numbered files. Huh. She was able to give the folks at Freshfields those search parameters, and they located the file, the JR file of this particular client. And the Swiss, very much like the Germans, are notorious record keepers. So every contact that any banker ever had with a with a client was, was notated in mm -hmm. detail, when it was, what was done, so on. And so sure enough, there was a meeting. That took place uh, after Schumacher resigned, but before Schumacher met with with Jr., where he was encouraged to stay, but it wasn't with Raul Weil. 
it was with the government's main cooperator, Martin Lichty, who they were going to call at the end of their case. It's like and a we Perry were, Mason moment. It's a Perry, it Mason, a Perry moment. Mason moment. We were able to prove because of Susan's work beyond any question. Wow Wiles' name wasn't even in the file. He never interacted with this guy once. Okay. It was just another fiction that the government didn't bother to look at um, because it was there. You just had to find the file. It took a lot of detective work to get. The, and once we found it, by the way, the government stipulated that's his file. Right. So we got it in. And we were able to show that Schumacher's either recollection was mistaken at, at best or at worst, he was inserting Wiles' name where it was really Lichty, one or the yeah. other. I, I wonder how his testimony was evaluated after he got caught with his pants down. It, it got worse from there because he also, well, we had a great moment also where the one part of the case, as I mentioned earlier, that absolutely was happening was, was the setting up of these sham structures. Um, and we were able to show um, Schumacher admitted it multiple times that Ra Wild wasn't even in charge of the North American desk at that time. He was running Asia and Europe. He had nothing to do with the North American desk and the U.S. clients. And we got him to admit repeatedly that Ra Wild had absolutely nothing to do with this and had no knowledge of the use of sham structures. So that well, I saw I, I saw that part of the transcript where where you ask him for the names of people who who were involved and he starts giving them. And then he says, uh, you know, you don't expect me to remember every name. And, and you say, no, no, no. Like that's good enough, but you know, no while. And and you, I mean that that is a risky question uh to ask about, you know, pointing to your client and asking about your client. And and he gave it to you. Yeah, I walked over. I felt he was already locked in because I got him to admit that it was him and everybody below. And obviously Ra Wild was many, many levels above. Right. So at that point, I wanted to cap the point, right? So I literally walked over. Uh, I didn't plan this, I didn't script it in my head. It was a moment that just came to me, and I walked over, went right, right over to Wild pointed at him and said, this man, Ra Weil, had nothing to do with this, right? And he said, that's true. Um, and Aaron told me later on that when I was asking that question, I don't know if we're allowed to curse on on these podcasts, yeah. but he said uh, that he was shitting a brick. Um, <laughs> but I, I didn't feel it was a risky question at that point because he had been locked in. Um, there was no way he could he could change it at that point. But, but, you know, Matt, and you and I have talked about trial strategy before, you know, a lot of lawyers would have, would have, just waited till closing and argued it. And, and you and I both believe like, that's not the way to do it. You have to take advantage of those dramatic moments. Um, the jury's waiting. Like if you wait till closing, it's too late. Um, you know, you have to take advantage and 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 cap off the point or or it's not as dramatic or is not as important as, as it could be. I, I completely agree. Look, obviously there are certain things you can only go so far on the cross and you can't dip your toe a, a, a millimeter further or you're going to get burned. But you have to, you, I think the difference is skilled cross-examiners know when they can and when they can't, right? And he had already been locked in that the only people who knew were the people below him. Ergo, it couldn't have been Weil, who was many levels above him. So why not make the point explicit? Why right. not make it clear? Why not make it personal to Raul Weil? Um, and I agree with you. I think, you know, when you have someone locked in, you have to have the confidence to know that you're right. The, and I knew he was going to go with me. I mean, he already was. What was he going to say now that now that you're asking me the third time? No, I told him that he'd already been locked into it. So I wasn't wasn't worried about that. Um, and he was really destroyed as a as a witness um, as, as a result. So so that was one of the first witnesses. Was it the first witness or? or? I think they called the records custodian, but he was the first substantive witness. Yes. So so the trial starts off really strong. And then their main cooperator, you also decimate. Is his name Lichty? Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, Martin Lichty. Yeah. So so the cross there, I think, goes for three days, which I've never done a cross for three days. That sounds exhausting to me. 
It was exhausting. Um, look, you know, I, 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 I know you and I are both students of trial advocacy. We're junkies. We're, we're, we're nerds about it. And I know, you know, we all know Irving Younger's 10 rules of, of cross, 10 commandments of cross-examination. And one of them is be short. Right. Be brief. Um, I have tremendous respect for the late, great Irving Younger. Um, but I, I don't understand that advice. Um, I don't mean that you should be long. Okay. I think the answer is that the cross should be as long as it needs to be to make the points you want to make. And if that's 20 minutes, great. But if that's, if it takes three days, it takes three days. And, you know, look, I, I put a witness on direct once for six days. <laughs> How long should the cross be? 20 minutes? Right. I mean, it needs to be as long as it needs to be to cover the ground that needs to be covered. And so Lichty testified to a 10 year period of time. Um, and he he testified for probably about a day and a half. I crossed him for twice as long, but that's because they were not really relying on any of the documents. They mm -hmm. were just relying on his testimony and very few of the documents. And what we were able to do through the documents was to show that almost everything Lichty said was false. Um, Lichty, for example, claimed that he, he was interesting because on the one hand, he didn't want to accept responsibility of it for knowing any wrongdoing or doing any wrongdoing. By the way, he was given full immunity, so he had no reason to, to not just tell the truth, but, but his own vanity, which is what I think prevented that. Um, and on the other hand, he said, I was running to Raoul Wallach to let him know about all these problems. It made no sense. It was inherently contradictory. But but one of the things he kept saying was that I went to Raoul Weil and I, I told him about this and I told him about that in these one-on-one -on -one sessions that he called bilaterals, meaning it was just be me and him in a room and we would do this every day. So we had bilaterals almost every day was his testimony. There was a couple of problems with that. Uh, one was that he himself then testified he was traveling two to three weeks out of every month and Weil was also traveling as frequently. So the amount of time that the two men were actually in Switzerland at the same time was, was very, very limited. Two, almost everything he claimed that he said in a bilateral, we were able to prove with an email. He said just the opposite to him. <laughs> right. so for example, he said, I, I went running with Raul Wallace saying we have compliance problems. We'd show an email which said, you have nothing to worry about. We're in full compliance. And when I would confront him with that document, he would say, that's not how I remember it, as if somehow his lack of recollection was going to make the doc document magically disappear. One of the more dramatic moments was, was Schumacher. As I mentioned earlier, Schumacher resigned to go to another bank to lure away U.S. clients. So uh, Lichty testified that as soon as he um, handed in his resignation, as soon as Schumacher handed in his resignation, Lichty said he didn't even wait for a bilateral. He went running with resignation in hand into Weil's office to tell him Schumacher has resigned and we have to do what we can to retain the U.S. clients. There was only one problem with that testimony. Raul Weil wasn't his boss at the huh. time he went running to him. Raul Weil was still in Asia. Okay, and wouldn't be promoted into the position that would make him his boss until four or five months later. Okay, so it would have made no sense he would have went running to Raul Weil with resignation in hand when Raul Weil wasn't his report and Raul had nothing to do with the desk. So when he got caught in that lie, he said, Well, I knew he was going to be my boss. Yeah. And so rather than run to my current boss, I ran to who I knew would be my future boss. Except we then showed that it wasn't even announced that Raul Weil was going to be the future boss until two weeks before he became the future boss, which is again, many months after the resignation of, of Lichty. So, you know, uh, time and time again, we were able to show through preparation. And again, hats off to Freshfields that did the bulk of this work, 
that almost everything he said was not true. And we were able to prove it with the documents. One of the pieces of advice, Matt, that I, I like to give to lawyers is, you know, try not to be Albert Krieger. Try not to be Roy Black. Try not to be Matt Mitchell. You got to be you. And and I know, you know, you're a New Yorker and and uh, you can raise your voice during cross and and that's who you are. And I think you got some bad advice during this cross. Well, listen, that particular moment when when he lied about going to Weil and then lied that he knew Weil was going to be his boss, which is why he then claimed he ran to him, I got overly excited and I started to raise my voice. And I think while I think Lichty said, you don't need to raise your voice. And I think I said, I do. I do need to raise my voice. <laughs> um, and at the end, um, Judge Khan, when we took a break, said, uh, now, there were a couple of questions toward the end of that examination that had there been a objection, I would have sustained those. Um, and so, you know, Aaron and the other members of the team uh, perceived that Judge Khan was unhappy with me. And, and by the way, I, I thought he might have been as well. Um, so I dialed it down in the afternoon. And one of the things that we did in this trial, and it's only the second time, I've, it was the first time I'd ever done it, was we used a shadow juror. Um, and what that is, is we had another person um, that Doerr had selected, I think it was like an intern from Doerr, who sat in the courtroom, but only when the jury sat. So, and we had no interaction with this guy. So he only saw and heard what the jury saw and heard. Nothing more, nothing less. And every night he would write reports of, of his impressions of the day. And that night he wrote a report and he said something like, the morning was great. Menschel was on fire. And then he said in the afternoon, what happened? Where was the mustard? Those were his exact words. <laughs> um, and so he, so that's just one guy's perception, but his perception was that it was appropriate um, uh, passion and, and, and voice raising. And I later spoke to judge Khan about that. And I asked him, were you unhappy? He goes, no, I, it was fine. I was just letting them know that they could, they could stand up for themselves a little bit because the government had gotten very quiet during this cross. Um, so, so I, you know, I, I went back to more of, more of the passion that I was bringing naturally. This wasn't forced. I was genuinely impassioned by the fact that I felt the government had put a man on trial that was not guilty and they knew it. Yeah, That was a firm belief. And so that was what was coming through during the cross. I, I like uh, using the mustard. So you got to, I think you got to use it when you have it. Um, you, I also, I also love hearing stories about how clients sort of perceive it and are dealing with it. And your client was so, as you say, unflappable. I think he would tell us the story. He was giving you like little chocolates uh, during this cross. Well, I have a penchant for chocolates as, uh, as, as one can tell just by looking at me. Um, and, uh, uh, Raul knew that. And so each morning uh, during the this cross did last three days, um, he would put a little Swiss chocolate uh, on 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 the table where I would begin my examination. Um, and I'd have that for my little morning fuel, if you will. And then when the trial was over, he sent me a whole a whole case of them. Um, I love it. I love it. Good guy. But but to your point about this, we we'll talk about it in a second. We we didn't put on a defense, but um the man had so much dignity and poise and grace that Judge Khan, when the trial was over, said to me that he had just observing him, he could he picked up on all of that. And he never saw a man compose himself. This is what Judge Khan said, with such dignity and grace, while his finger was being pointed by five different bankers at various points for things that they said he did that we knew he didn't. And Um, the U.S. government. And the U.S. government pointing at him. And the U.S. government. And I thought it was amazing that Judge Khan, who never heard Raul Wiles speak, as far as I know, um, 
was able to pick up on that perception because he was exactly right. The man was incredibly dignified throughout the entire process. You, you raise that there was no defense put on. To me, this is the most difficult decision that we make as defense lawyers because you know, we don't have to put on a case. Everybody knows that. But I think, you know, generally jurors want to hear from the defense, want to hear, you know, especially from the client, but also from witnesses. And a lot of times we we put on no defense. Um, tell us about that decision in this case and how you came to it. Yeah. And, and I should start by saying that we had developed a robust defense. Um, uh, again, Mostly Freshfields had done this work. I had done a little of it, but but we had, by my recollection, 12 witnesses lined up to testify in favor of Rawa, which was more witnesses than the government put on in their case in direct. Um, a number of them were were Swiss nationals who the government would not agree to give safe passage to. So we had filed a motion in advance and got the court to allow them to testify via video uh, in London. Um, they couldn't do it in Switzerland because the Swiss rules are, are, are different. Um, they don't swear witnesses in Switzerland, for example, and they don't, and, they, and witnesses are allowed to actually take their testimony back, which I found fascinating. Um, so we had lined up a very robust defense, um, but we felt the case went incredibly well. We got lucky because we had a number of days. I think I think the government finished their case, I think on a Wednesday or a Thursday, and we asked the judge to give us some time so we could fly over the witnesses. Um, and Judge Khan being, a, you know, again, that's his thing, his time, reluctantly agreed to break early in that week. And that gave us about four days to really hash through, did we want to do this? And there was very robust debate amongst the defense team. And I remember at one point, Aaron Marcoux, you know, understandably thought, hey, we got great witnesses. Why, why aren't we putting these people on? And he said to me, what are you afraid of? And I said, Aaron, let me ask you something. Do you think the government thought their case went in as expected? And he paused and said, no. I said, that's what I'm afraid of, right? <laughs> that the same thing can happen to us. This is an inherently unpredictable, this is an inherently unpredictable process, right? Trials are are living things that mutate once born, once one of my colleagues once said to me, in directions and in ways you can't imagine. And so I felt I felt we had done enough to at least get a hung jury. Um my colleague Adriana was firmly in the camp. We had won this case. It was over. I wasn't prepared to go that far yet, um, but I definitely felt that I felt very good that we had demolished, literally demolished all of their all of their cooperators on the on the critical points. And so, after much hand wringing, I got everyone to agree. I didn't make them say this is a group decision because <laughs> if, if we lost, obviously, you would be wondering forever. You left 12 people, not including the client, who were ready and willing to come and testify on his behalf. Uh, when we went back in the, on the following Monday to announce we weren't putting on a case, I remember Judge Khan was a little perturbed um, because he felt we, you know, he'd given us a break to to line people up. I, I thought he might be happy that, well, we're not putting on any case, but, <laughs> you know, and I think he was, but I also think he felt like, you know, I, we could have moved the case along faster, but but he was fine about it. And Aaron, I believe, was the one who stood up and, and in front of the jury said, you know, we're, we're resting, meaning we're not putting on a defense. And I remember one of the jurors, like it was yesterday, I remember where he was sitting. He turned, he looked back behind to another juror and he went, he gave a face and a, and a hand gesture like, I told you so. Right. Right. And 
that gave me great comfort. You know, I know we often can't read the jury right. We're often wrong. We, jurors are nodding with us. We think they're in our camp. We find out they're the leader against us later. But but this was a very obvious cue that he was saying, I, and I told you so, look. And I read that as they're not going to put on a defense because they don't need to. So that that, was, that decision turned out to be the right the right decision. But before we get to the closings and the verdict, and you know, this case got a lot of press, especially international press, a lot. Um, and there were reporters in the courtroom during the government's directs, during the government's opening, they'd race out and, and write about it, but they they wouldn't stick around for the crosses in the defense point of view. And so a lot of people following the case thought, this guy's sunk. He's he's in big trouble. I mean, it's one thing that really bothers me about media coverage. You know, how do you deal with that? Well, let me explain what happened because it was really shocking. And I wasn't yeah. paying attention to the media. They were behind me. And you're right. By the way, this wasn't a, a New York Post or obviously a sensationalized case, but it was it was carried by the financial press very heavily by Bloomberg and Reuters and German press and Swiss press and French, all financial type of uh, media. Um, and there was a large queue of there was a large group of them behind me, but I didn't notice. And when Schumacher first testified, he said a lot of very you know sexy things. He talked about Swiss bankers traveling with diamonds and toothpaste tubes, none of which had anything to do with while, but nonetheless was sexy stuff in the case. And and when I got up to do the cross, I didn't notice, but people told me the entire press corps got up and walked out. <laughs> it's right? crazy. And during my cross of Schumacher, one of them sent sent me an email. Um, and said, Mr. Menschel, can you let me know when you're going to be done with Mr. Schumacher's cross? I want to know when to return the courtroom. <laughs> so I liken this to watching a football game where the only time you're watching the game is when the team you like has possession of the ball. And you think it's a blowout because they've just scored five touchdowns. But of course, you're only watching it when they have the ball. And the other team got 10 touchdowns and it was actually a blowout in the other direction. You just weren't watching right. it. Right. So I... I heard, I wasn't following the media. I don't read media while I'm trying a case. I don't know. There's no value to it as far as I'm concerned. So I didn't read it. And I still have never read it, frankly, the media that was reported at the time. But I later was told that the media said we were getting killed. Um, and I find it very frustrating. And, you know, one of my pet peeves, David, is, is when you watch these cable news networks, right? And they always say on a case, they always have some, you know, talking head legal expert who says, uh, you know, juries are notoriously unpredictable. Look, I've been doing this 36 years. If I felt that trying a case was the equivalent of closing my eyes and throwing a dart at a board and wherever it landed, it landed. If it was that arbitrary, I would have quit a long time ago. I haven't always agreed with a jury verdict, but I can honestly say I've never been surprised by one. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I've never been, I've never sat there and go, how did that happen? Fascinating. I'm, sure there are, I'm sure there are moments, I'm sure there are verdicts like that, but they're very few and far between. Yeah. You know, and the reason why it seems unpredictable is because if you're reporting with a bias and a slant and then the verdict goes in the other direction because you weren't accurately reporting the case, it seems like it was a wild and crazy verdict. Right. I mean, they, 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 typically only say, they typically only say it's wild and crazy when it goes the defense way, honestly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And and look, I mean, this case, judge, we did a you know rule 29 motion, right? A motion to set it to, to dismiss the case before it went to the jury. Um, Judge Khan reserved. That didn't mean anything to me. I've had other judges that do it as a matter of convenience. They'll reserve and then they'll issue either a written or oral decision later, um, denying it, right? I've, I've never won one. Um, but 
he later told me that it was only the second time in his 30 years on the bench at that point, he'd been a state judge before a federal judge, um, that he had reserved on a Rule 29. And he was fully intending on setting the verdict aside if the jury had not rendered the verdict of not guilty, which they did. Um, but the verdict came back in under an hour. Um, in fact, we were still, you know how it is, David, when you, there were hundreds of exhibits introduced. You have don't, to don't, don't get me. Don't get to the verdict yet. We okay. we got it. We got to build up to the verdict, Matt. We're okay. gonna have Let's go closing first and then we'll get to okay. the verdict. So let me ask you about closing first. So, so, you know, when you were a DA, obviously you would close with a legal pad. And then as an AUSA, you know, maybe you'd, you'd type up a closing or have some notes. Now, when you do closings, I imagine, you know, you have slides and, 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 uh, and decks and blowups. How important is that in a closing? I know you did it in this case as well. I do it. I use a PowerPoint presentation in every closing I give now. Um, and if I have the, the benefit of, of a door or Dubin Consulting, another great jury consulting firm, Josh Dubin and his folks I've worked with, they're great. At, 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 both firms are great at, at graphics design. And what will happen is during the course of the trial, they're endlessly making slides of, of snippets of testimony, of key documents with blowups on them, of key jury instructions and the like. Yeah, I, I find them really helpful. Um uh, because when the screen, when the slide comes up, I just know what I'm going to say. I'm not competing against the slide. I'm using the slide in conjunction with my speaking. So if, if it's up there, I'm usually reading right from it or, and, and sometimes depending upon how I'm physically situated, pointing to it and going over word by word with it. But I think giving them both a visual, I think we're visual learners, most of us anyway. And so I think to have the slide with the actual testimony is usually important. Um, I don't want them to be relying just on my paraphrasing of what the witness said. I want to use, if I can, the actual transcript. Um, I think it's particularly important, by the way, in our district, David, because we don't have readback here where the jurors are, are read back transcript. In New York, it was it was done as a matter of course. Um, so this will be the only time they'll probably get to actually see snippets of the transcript. And I think it's very, very important that you use the actual words and the testimony that you got, not a paraphrase. Cr critical. Um, all right, let's get to the verdict. So, so the jury goes out. I, I mean, we've we've talked about this on the podcast many times with lots of lawyers. Literally, the worst feeling you can have as a lawyer while the jury's out. Jury's out, and they got the case late. By my recollection, they got the case around sometime after three thirty. Um, we did not expect we were going to have a verdict. Uh, in the meantime, there were hundreds of exhibits that had to be gone over with the government because you have to have agreement that yes, that came in. No, that was only marked as an, uh, for identification, but not admitted. And there were hundreds of them. So it was going to take probably several hours. I wasn't, candidly, I wasn't the one doing it. Uh, if you know the Fort Lauderdale courthouse, it's a very weird courthouse. There's a, a, like a outdoor deck. Right. I was outside on the deck, just, you know, chilling out. And at about 4.30, we got, a, we got the court security officer came out and said, the judge wants to see you. I presumed he wanted to talk about next day. You know, you know how it is. Where are you going to be? How am I going to who's going to be accessible? How far from the courthouse are you allowed to be before the verdict comes in? The logistics of what you have to do while the jury is out. Instead, um, he passed the note around, which said in all caps, we have a verdict, two exclamation points. Um, in fact, I have it embossed. Freshfields made a little trial block with the verdict sheet on it. Oh, I love that. That's you great. Can see, yeah, right. That's that's cool. Um, and um uh you know, at that point we knew. So uh, 
they came in. I think Aaron wanted us all to, you know, maintain our calm. Um, that was sort of his uh, instruction to us. And as soon as the verdict was read, we exploded. We just erupted. I, I remember banging my hand on the table, not realizing that the reverberation of that going through the microphone was going to be unbelievably loud. Uh, and it was. And Judge Khan, to his credit, just let us have that moment. Um, Raul's wife was there. She was hugging him over the railing. Uh, uh, Kim Zelnick, uh, who had been working on this case since 2008, uh, you know, broke down. Uh, I started tearing up, uh, to be to be honest. Um, and uh, when the jury was excused, Raul Wild, Raul just said, uh, in his typical fashion, "So where are we going to dinner?" <laughs> that's that's awesome. Those were the first words that he uttered. Um, and uh, and you know, it, it, and then he was on. He was out the next day and back and back home, where he was really welcomed, uh, almost given it like a hero's welcome in Switzerland because he was the first Swiss banker to actually fight the government and not just accept whatever they were willing to give him. Where um, where did you go to dinner? You know, we went to some restaurant on A one A. I don't I don't remember. It was it was uh, you know in Hollywood. You know, on A one A somewhere, but I don't remember exactly. You know, Matt, you you mentioned you know you teared up the emotions there. I don't think people who who are non lawyers or even non criminal defense lawyers realize how much we put into these trials. How much, not just you know time, but our 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 beings, our emotion, our our you know you put everything you have into it. You're sort of putting yourself out there to the jury. Uh, and you have a man's life in your hands. Yeah, I got to tell you, you know, I, as you know, David, I was a prosecutor for 20 years before I became a defense attorney. And I put just as much effort and work into being a prosecutor, but it's not the same. The emotional commitment and the feeling of that responsibility, um, it weighed very heavily in, in that trial. Uh, I mean, I, I, I would be lying if I said to you that I did not seek help from a higher power during that trial. <laughs> yeah, we all do. Even though I don't believe I always do. It's it's I, it's it's really crazy. Me too. I'm not sure I believe either, but I believe in those moments. I, I'll um, tell you so, I haven't told the story um but but Margo and I during the Gillum trial there was a a church uh, right across the street from the courthouse and when the jury went out uh they were out um for a while and and uh, one day while they were out we walked and sat in the church. Um you know, I'm Jewish and I don't even believe and I was sitting in the church praying. I've done that as well. I've gone into a church, not that trial, but there was another trial where uh, a colleague of mine took me into a church and, hey, when in Rome, you know, <laughs> whatever works. Um, but, you know, uh, it was it was an enormous relief um, because it's one thing, as, as you know, look, we represent our clients to the best of our ability, whether they did it or not. But in this case, I really feel it was an extraordinary injustice had been done to this man. His, you know, I said it in closing. I said, look, his life is already ruined. Okay. It's been destroyed. His career is over. He'll never have the same career. You know, let's not assassinate him further with this verdict, you know? Um, and uh, I meant, I'm, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to steal that. It, actually, what I stole, since you're talking about stealing, was was that came from the Welch McCarthy hearings, where he said, um, Senator, let us not assassinate this lad further. You have done enough. Um, and I used it by saying, let's not assassinate this man further. Our government has done enough. Um, and actually, Khan told me that that was a moment that also resonated with him. He hadn't really thought about the implications until I mentioned them. And look, there was no evidence about what I said. I just said it, right? But it was kind of obvious, right? They knew from the testimony he hadn't been in the bank for years. 
um, his career was destroyed. Um, it really caused him to level set his life after that. He works now a couple of times, a couple of days during a week as a consultant. It's been a very different existence for him. But, you know, he um, he had the, 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 the courage and the integrity to see it through. And as a result of him, other bankers went to trial subsequently um, who were also acquitted. Um, some were also convicted, but there were those who were also acquitted. He was really the first one to to go up against the government and say, I think I think you're wrong and I'm going to fight for it. You know, you know, the other thing we always talk about, Matt, um, when we see each other is how many trials you have in you, because these trials take years off your life and you only have, I th- you know, you and I agree on this. You only have so many trials in you before it's too much. I always think of The Princess Bride. Um, that movie where, um, where uh, you, you know, the, the main hero is being tortured um, with this machine. And when he gets done, I think it's Christopher Guest. I don't remember who the bad guy is, but he says something like, uh, I've just taken a year of your life. Right. And that's how it feels. It feels like every trial is a sucking of a certain amount of time from you. And I do think it's finite to some degree. And 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 I know with me, you know, if I start to feel that my skills are diminishing to a point where I'm not doing it at a level that I want to do it, then I'll know it's time to stop. If nothing else, that'll be the that'll be the barometer for me. Well, they're certainly not diminishing. Um, one of the things that I want to do before I finish up is try a case with you. So we got to find one to do yeah. this. This was a, a wonderful interview, and I just want to thank you for taking the time, Matt. To, uh, I'm honored to, to be on the podcast um, with the both with you and also with seeing the names of the other guests that you have that you would. Be kind enough to allow me to be on. It was a was a real pleasure and a real treat. And thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure to discuss trial tactics with a master like Matt Menchel. Thank you, Matt, for being on the show. As good a trial tactician and trial lawyer as Menchel is, he messed up the impressions of Judge Khan. So sorry to Judge Khan if you're listening about those impressions. I know uh, that Southern accent that Menchel did, being from New York, did not do you justice. So sorry about that. Uh, but Judge Khan is the best, and and we need to get Judge Khan on the show. We have a lot of great episodes coming up in the next couple of weeks. I'm really excited about it. Big thank you for listening. If you could like, uh, comment, review the podcast, spread the word, it w- I would really appreciate it. That's how we get the word out. Thank you for listening. I'm excited uh, about the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.